Welcome to the Mike Litton Experience Podcast. Mike has over 31 years experience in real estate, finance, and investing. He's passionate about being a father, a teacher, a realtor, an investor, and a leader. Everyone has a story, and our passion is to help them tell it. And now, introducing the host of the Mike Litton Experience, Mike Litton. So what can you expect from the Mike Litton Experience? You can expect stories that will inspire, motivate, advice that will sharpen your focus, and expert information on real estate, finance, and market conditions. Amanda Hess, thank you so much for being our guest on the Mike Litton Experience. I cannot thank you enough for making time for us today. I'm super excited about our time together. As we talked about before we hit record, everybody has a story and our passion is to help them tell it. And so with your permission, what we're gonna do is we're gonna have you start with where you were born, go all the way up to today with your life story. And then we'll talk about anything you wanna talk about that you're working on today and or for tomorrow. Is that cool? That sounds amazing. I'm excited. I'm so excited to have you here. So I know that your story is going to inspire and motivate a lot of our listeners, and I'm super excited for that. So where were you born? I was born in Calgary, Alberta, which is in Canada. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Lived so there did you for... grow up there? I did. Yeah, I lived there my whole life until 2020. So oh. in 2020, um, when the pandemic hit... My husband and I kind of looked around and went, we could do this anywhere and okay. decided to move to British Columbia. So we moved to a small city in British Columbia called Kamloops and okay. it's about, got about a hundred thousand people. Whereas in comparison, Calgary, you know, has 1.6 million. Right. So large, very big difference. Large city, yeah. yeah. So that's where I started and that's where I am now. We just really wanted a lifestyle change and it's, it's been a pretty cool transformation moving here, but my roots are in Calgary. I love Calgary. It's a beautiful city. There's amazing people that live there. I have nothing but, but love for Calgary. That's for sure. So let me ask you a question. What was your favorite thing about growing up in Calgary? That's such a great question. You know, I think Calgary had a lot to offer from the standpoint of it had a little bit of everything. Mm -hmm. So you have the mountains nearby, you have the mountains right there. So you can get out into the mountains and do all of those things, but so much opportunity. And, you know, one of the things that I remember about Calgary when I was younger, and it's, it's not really that way now, but when I lived there, it was kind of like a small city when I was younger, there was a nice vibe in Calgary. It was very friendly um, wasn't showy, just a lot of people that were really down to earth is, is how I sort of saw it. And on, in all honesty, how people used to talk about it. Yeah. So that's, so I think one feeling, of the big things. Have a feeling of community. Yeah, there really was, you know, they have the Calgary stampede there. I don't know if you're familiar. I am. Um, I love the stampede. My mom loved the stampede. So we would always go, we would always go, we do all the rides, but we'd also check out the horse barns and the donkey barns and, you know, check out all the animals and everything else. And I think the stampede was such a cool place. You would just have people that were so friendly and so willing to talk to anybody and everybody about everything. There was just an openness that really was there. I feel like it's not as much so there anymore now that it's grown. That could just be also though, because I'm 47. You know, you have a different view of the world than when you were, say, like 20 yeah, or 12, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So growing up, who was the most influential person to you? You know, the most influential person to me was my mom, for sure. You know, she's a big part of my life. She was a stay-at-home mom. Um, you know, when I was younger, I figure skated. And so that was a big part of our life. And she was the one that did that with me. My dad was really doing hockey with my brother. And then when my parents moved to an acreage and my mom had always wanted to have horses. So when they decided to get horses, we had, uh, horses on our property. We were, I worked at the stable that was nearby and my mom was just a big part of that. I spent a lot of time with her. So she was really influential in my life growing up for sure. So in high school, what was your favorite subject? Probably English actually. Yeah. I mean, it was the easiest for me. I was an avid reader, always had been. My parents were both big readers as well. So it was something that I grew up having in front of me and actually really struggled in school. 
I would say that socially it was a real hard thing for me growing up in school and books was the way that I could escape. You know, you can always open a book. Mm -hmm. And back then there were no phones, <laughs> so you didn't have access to all of these other things, right? You really just had your own thoughts, which sometimes weren't that nice, or you could open a book. And so English for me, it was something that came really easily. And yeah. I think that that's part of the reason why I liked it. I mean, it's nice when things are easy for you sometimes, and, and it was just well, easy to understand and I could really excel at it, which is. And you can relax too. When you're, when you're reading a book, you can just relax and just fall into that world. Right. Yeah. And you know, it's really served me growing up. I will say that where I'm at now, I have my own podcast as well. And I think I speak well, I've been told I speak well, but you know, there some, people might, well. some people might disagree, um, speak well. but when I grow <laughs> up, I want to be just like you. <laughs> But uh, I think reading really helped with that. I try to instill that in my own, my own kids, but they're just really not that interested in reading. And it's fascinating because they want to get good grades in, in subjects like English. And the truth of the matter is, if you want good grades in English, the best way to do that is it's just reading. It's just volume. Mm -hmm. It really is. <laughs> Practice makes perfect, right? And reading what somebody else has put on paper give prepares you to be good at English. It's that simple. It's true. It's, this is what grammar sounds like, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, obviously you're also a very proficient speaker and you know, that is the truth of the matter. The more that you read, the more words you hear, the more words you hear that you don't understand and you don't know what the meaning is, then you have to go look it up. So you know what they're talking about. Your vocabulary increases, your ability to explain how you feel or, you know, what's going on for you is just much greater yeah. and it's pretty cool. So for me, you know, I know that one of the things that I think people find hard with English is, is the aptitude part of that. Right. And for me, the aptitude was always really easy. Now, do I think that I have a tendency towards being good at that? Of course. Right. Because if I'd have really loved math, I'd probably would have been all about math, but I was right. not, right. <laughs> but I was all about English and I was all about reading, you know? So it's been, yeah, really cool for me. That's cool. So let me ask you this. And I, I know you said that you figure skated mm -hmm. or any other sports or any other extracurricular activities you did in high school. Well, you know, actually in high school, so figure skating, I did from the time I was about five until I was about 15. Mm -hmm. um, we moved to an acreage when I was 15. So my parents really told me I had to decide riding or skating, not both, which sounds really bougie. I know it kind of is, but I, I really was burnt out by skating at that point. You know, I skated six days a week. I skated three to five hours a day and I was all done and horses just sounded perfect. So the only real activity that I did in high school, in all honesty, was riding. I mean, it was my whole life because I had my horse, but then I worked at the stable that was actually kitty corner to my high school because we moved out to the country just outside of Calgary. Mm -hmm. And uh, I rode every day. I mean, I cleaned stalls every day. It mm -hmm. wasn't that bougie. It was a lot of poop <laughs> and a lot of sweat and a lot of really hard work. And a lot of times in climates that are not all that nice, yeah. but that was my whole world. It was a very, it's a very physical thing and it was really immersive and really good for me at a time when I was really struggling socially. It was a good escape. Yeah. It sounds like it. So I grew up on a farm in Oklahoma and okay. I farmed with my grandfather for nine years. And I told my kids when I, when, the, when they were growing up, I said, you know, if I had a time capsule or a time machine, I would send you back and you would work on the farm with granddad. Yeah we don't have that. And you're going to have a significantly higher standard of living than I had when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. So here's the deal. If you even remotely sound like you're sounding entitled or spoiled or whining or any of that kind of thing, I'm going to take you physically out to a local horse ranch and you're going to muck out stalls for free. <laughs> okay, Love it. Until you don't feel entitled anymore. Mm -hmm. Right. And yeah, so yeah. Every, every time they would start to whine or start to sound right, anything, I, you ready to muck out some stalls, right? When they found out what the mucking part was, what the actual part was they'd be shoveling, right? They yeah, were like, yeah. ew, right? <laughs> it builds character. 
It builds it, character. It builds character. And I think it probably builds your immune system. I mean, when I oh, think I, back, I'm like, I'm not sure how much manure I ingested, but I'm thinking a lot. Yeah, probably a lot. <laughs> probably a lot. Yeah. So after high school, where do you go? After high school, I went to university. I went to the University of Calgary. It's funny. I did want to go to university. I wanted to go to veterinary skill, veter veterinary school. I can say it, vet school. Mm -hmm. Um, I think I liked the idea of being a vet because I was going to be around animals, but I didn't really think about the course load that would lead there. Right. So, you know, I was an honor student in high school. Um, but it wasn't because I knew how to work. It's For because sure. I was smart. Okay. <laughs> Ish. I okay. knew how to work the system. Okay. I knew in high school that you could just, I was, I was proficient enough in high school to be able to show up, pay attention in class and get good grades. I just didn't have to work for it. <laughs> so when I went to university and my course load was first of all, advanced physics. I do not know why my high school counselors told me that's what I should take. Um, considering it was my worst subject, calculus, biology, chemistry, English, it was a shock. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it really is. I mean, the course load was enormous. Just the amount of reading that you had to get through and you weren't getting through that in class. After class, you have to read it. But yeah. not only do you need to read it, you need to understand it right. because, hey, guess what? In two more days, you're going to go back and it's going to be another boatload of work, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And if I went now, I'd be fine. I would know yeah. how to do it. But back then I did not. You know, I really... Everyone talked about how mature I was, and I wasn't mature at all, which is really interesting, right? I knew how to please the adults around me. Mm -hmm. That doesn't work in university. Yeah. That just doesn't work. And I also, because I struggled so much in high school, and I, I honestly believe because I am so honestly neurodivergent, for sure, like that's something I identify with. I outwardly process my emotions. I have sensory processing issues. Um, you know, there's just an awkwardness sometimes that comes along with it that mm -hmm. really isn't celebrated in school with your peers. Right. Sure. And so when I went to university, I started learning that I could really mask that with drinking. <laughs> so I did. And so I partied a lot in wow. high school in university, not in high school. Um, and I really, I just, was on a journey of, I think, self-discovery fueled somewhat by alcohol. And I spent a couple years in school, you know, kind of scraping by with C's and B's, didn't graduate, um, actually met my boyfriend at the time who we then got engaged. And I will say he convinced me to drop out, but it's not like it was too hard for me to be convinced to drop out at that point. Yeah. I really didn't know what I was doing there. Yeah. It was so just lost. Can I, can I ask you a question? Yeah. The alcohol, the drinking. Mm -hmm. Were you masking? A, were you masking pain? I think masking pain, and then also masking how I was. You know, now I know so much more about myself. I recognize that I'm actually quite introverted, but I do enjoy other people. But in small chunks of time mm -hmm. to be in a big group with a lot of people. I can do it and I'll excel. You would never know because I'm so good really at masking that. And adapting, yeah. Right. I yeah. am. I'm, I can be a chameleon in that environment. But that's not a good long-term thing for me because I actually need time to reflect. I need time to be by myself and I need time to really think about what am I going to decide about this? How do I want to show up? I need a lot of reflection to be able to feel comfortable being myself. So the chameleon part, mm -hmm. did that cause pain? Yes, because I wasn't, what had happened, I think for me is that for a long time, there was a story that I still carry with me, which is I don't belong and I don't fit in okay. and people don't like me. Um, so when I was in university, I worked really hard for people to like me. Okay. So what I discovered is if you're the fun party girl, mm -hmm. people like you. Yeah. And I think that that was for me, the biggest drive was all I cared about was that people liked me and that I fit in. 
That's all that mattered. Nothing else mattered to me because it felt so bad to be so severely bullied for so long, you know? So it's, I think, a survival response. I think it's a, a thing that we do to try and adapt. Like, I think we do adapt because we want to feel good. People, human beings want to feel safe. You want to be accepted. Yeah. And so I found a way to be accepted, except that it was such a toxic way to be accepted. It's yeah. not, it doesn't, it doesn't come with like consistency. You know, when you have too much to drink, you're not that much fun. Mm -hmm. <laughs> when you're hungover, it's hard to really do anything. Right. And so really just navigating that. And I wouldn't say that I was an alcoholic per se, but I would say that I abused alcohol, mm -hmm. which a lot of university students do, right? Oh, sure. This is not like an uncommon story, but just noticing for me that university, a lot of people will say, oh, it was so much fun. And I look back and I'm like, I don't know if it was fun, um, but I did discover a lot. You know, I think it needed to happen. Yeah. Part of the process of life. Yeah. And learning about yourself. A hundred percent. Yeah. So one of the things that I've noticed in life is people who were bullied tend to swing the other way. Like they they tend to get over here to where they are desperate for approval. They're desperate for acceptance. They're desperate for all these things. And that desperation is pain. And they yes. reach out to things that help to numb that pain and that help to, for lack of a better term, enable that behavior, right? Because if you're not tipsy, you might not nap, you might not be as easily the, the fun party girl, like you're saying, right? Right. Where, where you're trying really hard and that kind of thing. So, yeah. Wow. That's, that's quite a, that's quite a journey. So you, so you get engaged mm -hmm. about. Yep. Well, then I was in an abusive relationship. And so oh my gosh. that was not well, a that good. same, that same fiance. Mm -hmm. They convinced you to, to drop out. Yeah. Lots of controlling behavior. Um, Lots of really terrible things kind of that went on. I mean, he was not a physically abusive partner, um, emotionally, verbally, very manipulative. It was just a mess. You know, I remember um, we would have these fights and they would just be just these enormous screaming matches. Mm. And... The one day I'll never forget, we were engaged. And then he told me that he wasn't going to marry me. And he was so cold. And, you know, I remember calling my mom and my mom being like, I'm going to come get you come home, which I did. But then my mom had gone for surgery. Um, and I started talking to the fiance again and started talking to him. And when she found out, she was really upset and she was in the hospital and my dad found out and he kicked me out of the house because oh. he had upset my mom when she was sick. It was just a mess, right? Yeah. I mean, looking back, like I, I look at people that are in abusive relationships and I'm like, it, it's really easy to have an opinion when you're not in it Yeah. because it's very, it's, it's, it's a slow progression. It doesn't start the way that it finishes, Right. you know, right. and you're if you think about where I was at in that moment, right at that stage of my life, I had been bullied to the point where all I cared about was people liking me. Yeah. All I wanted was to be accepted and validated. It's not surprising that I found a boyfriend that was manipulative, right? Because that. Yeah. that just happens. And the one thing, like I even, I did well, they have radar for that. Yeah. Yeah. Right. They, they seek people out. Definitely. I mean, it's, it's scary. And what's so crazy about it. I mean, I heard the psychologist, I read her book. It's such a good book. It's called sexy, but psycho. And I love it. And it, it really, I mean, it's not for everybody, but it is about how psychology is based upon this patriarchal system of like diagnosing women. Mm -hmm. And the point she made was, why is there a beaten wife syndrome and not a wife beater syndrome? Right. You know, right. like who's the disordered one here? Right. So the victim kind of gets blamed. And that's what I really see is I see a lot of women that I talk to, that I coach that will say, 
I don't have, um, I don't have very good judgment. And it's so insidious, that thought, like it just seeps in. And for me, that was so true back then. And man, I just remember the emotional pain. Like it was excruciating, but what did allow me to leave was I uh, was going to go to couples counseling with this person. And then there was another blowout. He took a job in another city and it was just insane. And uh, he, he was gone. So he couldn't go to the couples counseling appointment. So I went by myself. Yeah. And when I went by myself, it was the best thing that ever happened to me. Cause the therapist was like, this is abuse mm-hmm. and he hasn't hit you yet. Right. He's like, you it's need coming, to leave. Though. It's yeah. coming. This is coming. This is a pattern. Yeah. yeah it's a buildup, right? Yeah. They, they knock you down, knock you down, knock you down, knock you down. And they keep building to this crescendo. And the crescendo is they start laying hands on you. Yeah, exactly. So thankfully that conversation was enough for me to cut the cord. Yeah. That's awesome. And I'm so grateful that I got to that point and that my parents still supported me. I mean, listen, it's a lot for everybody. I do remember my brother coming with my dad to move me out. My brother looking at me straight in the face because I'd moved several times and he's like, I will never help you move again. Really? (laughs) He was done moving my stuff. (laughs) So you're going to have to hire a mover next time. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. He's like, I will not do it. Do not ask me. Wow. But uh, I moved back home and uh, got it together, you know, got some healing done and moved out and got my own apartment after that, which was a really good thing for me. Yeah. Yeah. So now you've moved out. Mm -hmm. You are in the process of trying to heal. And what happens next? You know, it's funny. Things were better, but they weren't better. Um, I was working, so that was good. And I actually got hired at a property management firm and I was doing property management, which, you know, paid all right and was a good, you know, sort of professional career. And I partied still a lot. I mean, that was my lifestyle back then. And that's how I met my current husband who Mm -hmm. I've been married to now for 21 years. (laughs) But uh, we met in that party lifestyle for sure. Met him. He was such a good fit. He's such a good man. And uh, dated, got married, and really kind of continued on with life. But Mm -hmm. what I will say is that I never really knew how to handle how strongly I felt my emotions. Like that is something that I didn't know what to do with. And frankly, nobody else knew what to do with it either. (laughs) Like not my parents, not anybody. Um, So I did have these emotional swings all the time that I just really couldn't seem to figure out. And I think that, you know, we do numb when that's going on. And, and I did do that. And I also, I really learned that other people don't really accept that in you. You know, if you need to outwardly process emotion, whatever that looks like crying, yelling, just talking incessantly, that would be sort of like my go-tos, right? (laughs) Um, other people don't necessarily accept that about you and it, it, it makes them uncomfortable. And it also, you see that discomfort. It's, it's kind of messy. And so I really struggled with that. So what I really learned to do was to push it down. Yeah. Right. Push it down. Well, that's, that's the socially, socially acceptable thing. Yeah. Right. So society's trying to tell you, don't do that. Don't, mm-hmm. don't express yourself. Don't cry. Don't get angry. Don't throw things. Don't, don't talk incessantly. Right. Mm-hmm. Just be normal. <laughs> Right. Just right? be normal. Just be normal. Couldn't you just be normal? Yeah. Because society is <laughs> society is constantly pushing that down, right? They're yeah, constantly yeah, yeah. trying to suppress that. And and people do it and they don't even know they're doing it. Like they do it on oh, for sure. Right? Like yeah. you might talk to somebody and be incest. You might be you might be crying. You might be upset, whatever. And people roll their eyes or 
people try to distance themselves or they, you know, and it's like, okay. <laughs> right. Well, think about like your kids, right? Like I look at, so who was telling me my, my son plays basketball. My 13 year old son plays basketball. And I guess the roughing was bad at the game, which happens. I mean, whatever sports always roughing is always the issue. Right. But, um, well, in sport, basketball, it, in basketball, it, it can be pretty bad. My son played basketball full time yeah. for a number of years. And I thought I was going to have an aneurysm watching some of this take place. <laughs> and I was their videographer. So I was there every game videotaping the game. And I was videotaping it so the kids could get better, right? So I'm up in the stands. And the very first time that I'm videotaping, I called the ref a bleeping idiot. <laughs> And this was going on YouTube, right? And it's like, okay, 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 right? It didn't sound good. So I made myself shut up, which I'm sure you now know was kind of a challenge, okay? Because mm -hmm. I can be a little talkative, <laughs> loquacious, whatever you want to call it, right? So I'm like, oh, right? So I couldn't even express myself. I just had to sit there and just listen, watch it, you know? And it was... It was a real experience. It was a real experience watching it happen. But some of the worst officiating I've ever seen is in basketball games for boys, you know, 13 to 18, right? Yeah, you know, it, it can be really bad. And and it's really tough, too. There was a player on the team that got fouled out. And, and honestly, my husband was like, it shouldn't have happened. I wasn't at the game. But he's like, it, it sucked. And he was quite upset. And, of course, you don't want to get fouled out of a game. Like, right. And I've just seen these kids play. I'm like, they don't, they're not an aggressive team. Anyways, right. it doesn't matter. The point is that this kid's mom had said to my husband that her son better not be crying. And I was like, oh, that is, I think for boys in particular, you guys get it worse than we do because we're allowed to cry, but you're not. Yeah. And I just think that is the problem with society is that yeah. we're telling kids that that's what they, that it's wrong to be upset and to outwardly show that you're upset with tears. Yeah. And I think men, so many men learn that the only appropriate way to react is anger. Right. Right. Yeah. But I also was like that as well, because I grew up in a house where it's like, you could cry for like 30 seconds and it was done. So somebody was timing you. No, they didn't. No, like but you, just, you could, see the, you could right. see the timer going around in my mom's head. She's right. like, and we're done. Right. Wow. Wow. So, yeah. <laughs> but I bring up that story just because I do agree with you in that we live in a society where emotion is not welcome. Yeah. And it's really a problem because many of us are experiencing really strong emotion. And yeah. if the only feedback we get is don't show other people. It's not surprising to me that we have a mental health problem, right. you know? Yeah. But I sure did. Because you don't have an outlet. You, right. you don't you don't have anywhere to go with it, right? Yeah. So you press it, you press it, you press it, and then all of a sudden it explodes. Right. Those are fun. You know, it's kind of <laughs> like when my dad gets mad, right? You don't want to be in the same zip code with that guy, <laughs> right? Yeah. But the most of the time... He's just suppressing it, suppressing it, suppressing it. So he takes it, takes it, takes it, takes it. And then he gets to a certain point and it's like the, vol the volcano erupts, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's not, you know, my dad doesn't do things that are like road rage or any of that kind of stuff. But you watch some of this stuff happen in, in, in our society. Mm -hmm. And you know, you know that there's something going on with them. It's finances. It's, you know, marriage. It's you know, it, it could be anything, right? Yeah. But it's that suppression that gets really dangerous because it, it becomes rage. And at some point that rage comes out. And when it comes out, it never seems to come out at the most opportune time, right? It comes out when it's not supposed to, you know? <laughs> well, I mean, it's, I'm being honest, you know, you, it's the truth. There's, there's a certain amount of, you've got to learn how to deal with this stuff. Mm-hmm and deal with it in a way to where other people don't get hurt. Well, this is a true. Lot of people that don't that don't have those that skill set. Well, I would say most people don't have that skill set to be honest. I agree with, with that. I agree with that. You know, I think that we're a lot of 
just human beings walking around this earth, having no skill set when it comes to emotion. And, you know, for me, like what I would say is that I had none. I didn't know how to regulate my nervous system. I didn't know how to allow emotion. I didn't know how to deal with myself in the moment. But I think more importantly, I didn't know how to build out my life in a way that I wouldn't feel those intense spikes and get out of control. Yeah. Right. And it was definitely modeled to me in my house. My dad was like that. Um, you know, it, it was modeled to him. His dad was an alcoholic. His mom was a refugee from Poland. Like nothing good went on in that house. Like, let me tell you, you look at it, right. And generational trauma is a thing. Mm Mm-hmm. And we all experience that. And, you know, I will say this, like, I have no bad feelings towards either of my parents. I think they both did the best that they could do, especially when I look at the homes that they grew up in, right? Like, oh, they did so much better than their parents did them. But, you know, what I do see from myself and what I did experience is, you know, got married. I had my first baby. Things were okay. Went back to work. Things were not okay. Um, my son was just constantly getting ear infections. I was trying to go back to my property management job. Um, I was working in finance at that point. It was a bigger job and it was really hard for me to leave my son. And, and of course, imagine your emotions when your hormones are are all over the place. Right. So I ended up driving a school bus for a while and having him on board. I don't recommend it. They sell it as a really good thing. It's not, but I did potty train him on that bus, which is impressive. I had this little porta potty that I had on the bus. Oh my gosh. It was an insane period of my life. So there's a whole <laughs> bunch of Petri dishes with legs that are riding on that bus. On right. That bus you, right. Yeah. And they're microcosms of how parents are parenting them. Mm-hmm. And it's a little scary. It's wild. It's a little scary because you're like, this person's going to be an adult one of these days, you know? (laughs) Wow. The stuff that would go on on that bus. So a bus, a standard size school bus fits 72 kids. Okay. That's a lot of kids. kids. And I drove for this charter school. So it was K to six. Kids were like, oh my goodness, doing all kinds of things. Like one girl kept showing her panties to people. Like, I was just like, how, how are you supposed to do? I'm driving a school bus on the freeway. Right. Right. It's not like I can pull over here. And by the way, I have to be there at a certain time because school's getting ready to start. And all of you were late getting on the bus. Hello. Oh man. There is so many things. I could tell you so many stories. It was just the craziest job. I can't believe I did it, but I ended up suffering through a couple miscarriages in between my kids. And it was, it was actually a really hard time for me and really, really struggling really struggling. And then working this crazy split shift job with this bus, I hit my house with the bus one day. No, I feel like it's not my fault because the lights stick out like, you know, like a foot. Right. And I had to back into my driveway and I lived on a Mm cul-de-sac. And if I didn't back into my driveway in the winter, my bus would get stuck. And then they're like, if your bus gets stuck, you're going to have to park it at the yard. And then my son wouldn't be able to have a nap and I wouldn't get any rest. So this was all very important to me. Right. So I was backing in one day. Right? Yeah, just just hit the eavesdropping. I'm like, cool. <laughs> it was wild. It was a wild time in my life. And you know, when I was pregnant with my second son, I'll never forget the day I quit <laughs> because my son's on the bus. I'm pregnant. My bus was leaking. I could smell the diesel. I knew there was a leak, and they just would not give me a new bus. Like, mm-hmm. oh, it was horrible. So I back in. And what the buses have is they have a button at the back of the bus and you have to press it to prove that you walk through the bus and look for kids Mm -hmm. because kids were being left on buses. So it's a safety feature, right? Right. Except the button wasn't working. So every time I do it, I come back, I take the keys out. The horn would blare. My son was crying. I lost my mind. I was like screaming and I put the keys back in. I called my husband. I'm like, I'm quitting today. I cannot do this. We are done. Mm-hmm. I drove the bus into the yard. I walked in. I quit. And that was it. I never yeah. drove a school bus again. I'm so done. Now <laughs> I have to go try and find my sanity, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so after the school bus career, school bus driving career <laughs> that you that you survived, right? What next? 
You know, what next is pretty crazy because I had my second son and it was a planned C-section because I was, I'd had a C-section with my first. I really actually did want to try and have more of a natural birth, but I just had such bad Braxton Hicks with him and I was over it. I'm like, I'm done. I'm not a good pregnant person. You know, how some people love being pregnant. Yep. That is not me. I yeah. am not that person. Braxton Hicks, by the way, is, is false labor. Right. Yes. Yeah. For people that are listening, for people that don't know. <laughs> for people that don't know. Yeah. Right. So false labor. So it feels very much like you're in labor. Just yeah. so you know, because people go, oh, it's false labor. It's no big deal. True. But also it feels like real labor. Right. So it's not fun. Right. And you There's don't nothing know. fun about it. There's nothing <laughs> fun about it. It's like, how do you even breathe? Right. Yeah. And it's, you know, and here's the thing, the pain that you go through to have children, to carry children and have children and all that kind of stuff. Men couldn't do that. We'd never have, we'd never procreate. We'd never have babies. You know, we are such wimps compared to these women that are just tough as nails. And then after you're tough as nails, you forget about it. Yeah. God has this way of wiping the slate clean. And all of a sudden you're like, what are you talking about? Because the husband is coming back and going, you know, when you were pregnant last time, this happened. No, that never happened. <laughs> you remember this happened? No, that never happened. What? I was there the whole time. I was awake the whole time. I was conscious. I remember it, right? Y'all don't remember it. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. But it's how it's how we're programmed to then continue to have more kids, right? Because if we remembered all of it, we'd stop. We'd just... It'd be the never, end. you'd never yeah. have another baby. I swear. Yeah. I mean, they do, you know, interesting side fact. I listened to this podcast where this radiologist was on and she's a female radiologist and she, her whole research is about women's brains because her whole point was there's no research on women's brains at all, yeah. which is wild because we have a completely different chromosome. So how is that possible? Yeah. Right. But she was talking about that and she has done research and what she has learned is that women's brains actually don't grow when you're pregnant. So you actually don't create any new brain cells when you're pregnant. Really? And the whole idea of baby brain mm -hmm. is actually a true thing because yeah. it's not just hormonal. It's actually physiological, which yeah. is pretty wild. Yeah. It's so a that, thing. This this yeah. whole this whole baby brain and wiping the slate clean and clearing the hard drive and all that. It's a real thing, and it's yeah, and it's a real thing with everybody. There isn't a single mom that I've met <laughs> that can tell me about the details that her husband can tell me about her being pregnant. It they just don't. It just it it goes away. It's true, and know you know the, you I just didn't know about the brain cell thing, but that makes sense. It's kind of cool to realize that that's actually a real physiological thing. And in fact, it goes on several months after postpartum as well, well right? That way. Yeah, you're programmed. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, like we were built for that. But, you know. What's interesting you know, is my children, my wife craved certain foods when she, yeah, was, yeah. when she was pregnant. And she doesn't remember all that either. But she 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 craved certain foods. And now those foods are my kids' favorites. Oh, that's so interesting. Oh, it's crazy. My yeah. kids. My, when she was pregnant with my son, our, her first, our firstborn, um, she craved, just couldn't get enough pancakes to save her life. She could eat pancakes three times a day. Okay. Pancakes, 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 and burritos, <laughs> bean burritos from, from Taco Bell with green sauce. Oh, wow. Okay. To this day, green burritos with green sauce or bean burritos with green sauce and pancakes. Kid just goes gaga over. Hilarious. He's 25 years old. That's amazing. Oh, it's crazy. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is kind of wild the way that all turns out. That is for sure. <laughs> it's fun. Though. You know, it was some of the most fun I ever had was walking on pins and needles for nine months. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Eggshell, I will tell you the most fun you don't have is not getting any freaking sleep for oh, like yeah. forever. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And she, you know, she turned to me several times and she's like, get this thing out of me. She doesn't remember ever saying that. She oh. doesn't remember, right? And I'm like, okay, okay. <laughs> remember my name? That's good news, right? I love that. Yeah, yeah my yeah. key still works when I come home and turn the lock. So, 
you know, that's good. good. So it didn't go all wrong. Yeah. 30 years, 30 years as of last month. So congratulations. Yeah. That's a long time, man. It is a long time, right? So tell me about when you learn about neurodivergent, tell me that story. How does that, how do you, first of all, how do you learn it? Second of all, how do you get to that place to where you you find this out? Because obviously you were looking, right? Were you looking for it? Uh, what I would say is that it's something that I learned about when I actually became a coach. And so I don't actually think it's something that I knew at the time was going on. I didn't recognize it or know. I did know that I was struggling. And, you know, after my second baby, actually, it was, I, it was not a good time with my second baby. I ended up having my C-section got infected, but six weeks later, like my OBGYN was like, this never happens. I was like, cool. I'm so glad That's it's happening great. to me. Yeah. I'm so <laughs> glad I'm a pioneer in this field. Please. Like, your chart is so different from anybody else's here. And really, it's, it's bigger than any of my other hear, clients. Right? That's the last thing in the world you want to hear. <laughs> like, this is great. So oh. that happened. And then I also got really bad mastitis, which is like an infected duct when you're breastfeeding. Right. So very, very excruciatingly painful in case you don't know. Um, and then I ended up when my son was about 10 months old, having a, a gallbladder attack. And I actually had one when I was pregnant and I didn't know, cause I didn't know what was going on, but gallbladder attacks are wild. Like you feel kind of like, I felt like I was having a heart attack, but I was also in so much excruciating pain and I was throwing up constantly. It was really bad. And I remember we called 911 and the guys come, it was the fire truck guys first and they, you know, firefighters, I guess they like to be called. Um, they came in and uh, they did an ECG and they're like, oh, you're not having a heart attack. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. I'll just go back to bed, I guess. And they're like, no, you're having a gallbladder attack. You need to go to the hospital. And uh, I did go and ended up, oh, it was just a nightmare. Like they scoped me because they were trying to figure out what's going on because my blood work was off. So one of the risks of the scope is that you can get pancreatitis. <laughs> this is like totally an aside story, but I got pancreatitis after that. So as I'm sitting there in the hospital, the treatment for pancreatitis, if you don't know, is no eating and no drinking. So you just sit there attached to an IV while you wait for this to basically leave your body. Right. And That's I got wheeled around right? to all these. What's that? It's painful, right? So painful. Yeah. So then they decided after the pancreatitis was done that they were going to remove my gallbladder, but then I kept getting bumped. So I was in the hospital for 11 days and I was, it was terrible. I kept getting bumped from ward to ward. It was a nightmare, but gallbladder left and I was fine. But what really was the harder part of this was that I wasn't sleeping because my son really didn't sleep unless he was nursing, um, which is problematic. Yeah. And also my hormones were still, as you can imagine, quite crazy. Physically, I wasn't doing that well, but emotionally, I really wasn't doing well because coping with one kid is one thing. Mm -hmm. Coping with two kids is a whole other thing. Yeah. And when you don't have good emotional tools, which I didn't have, it's not like I magically picked those up along the way. Right. I just, there became a day I will never forget it. I was taking my youngest one to preschool and in my fog of C-section pain and all the things I remember putting him on my chest, my youngest, I had a great Dane. I decided I had to walk the dog with me while we walked to preschool. I don't know why. And so we got there. My baby cried the whole walk. Then I dropped my son off, walked the whole way back and he screamed the whole way. And I just remember needing him to get off me. I needed him off me. He had to get off me. And I remember putting him in the bed, not gently. I mean, I didn't shake him, but I could feel like I was like on my last thread and I had a full mental breakdown, um, full. I called my husband. I'm like, I'm not okay. Bawling, like the whole thing got on a call with a psychologist who told me I needed to be on antidepressants. So I went to a, my GP at the time who diagnosed me with an antidepressant and it helped and it didn't help. I was very numb. 
which helped because I wasn't losing it on my kids, which is good. I wasn't about to like shake anybody. That was good. Um, I needed that at the time. I do see and I totally understand that. What I will say though, is that nobody, I still wasn't being taught any emotional skills. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like I was just coping with this antidepressant. And I remember going to see my GP and saying, you know, I don't think this is working because I will never forget one day I went to school with my son again, preschool, that's like your life when you're a stay-at-home mom and you have a preschooler. <laughs> and so I walk into the door, into the building where there's the line. And, and one of the moms looked at me and she goes, you know, Amanda, I just really appreciate how comfortable you are not caring about how you look when you show up here. And I was like, oh my gosh, I don't think that's a compliment. <laughs> a wonderful thing to say. <laughs> what a wonderful thing to say. Yeah. Legit. I mean, I was just, what I would say is I was barely surviving. I barely survived for a long time. And I went on another man antidepressant because my doctor said when I went in and told him that I didn't think it was working that, oh, that meant I was more depressed. So he switched me to a stronger antidepressant, yeah, which was so, so much worse. It's awful. Yeah. Right. And so then I um, was talking to a friend of mine who suffers from chronic depression and she said that I should go see a psychiatrist because they specialize in medication. So I did. And this was both a gift and a curse because the psychiatrist told me, you don't have depression and that antidepressant isn't helping you. So you need to come off it. And just in case you've ever never had to come off an SSRI, it is a horrible experience. But on top of that, he says to me, well, I think that you have borderline personality disorder. And in a 45-minute appointment, he diagnosed me with borderline personality disorder, told me that it was an incurable illness, that I would only ever be able to just find tools to cope with it, and enrolled me in DBT, which is dialectical behavior therapy. Yeah. So that went on for a long time. Like that diagnosis was hard hard for me to hear, hard for me to process. Um, on one hand, it felt good to know that there was a reason. Um, on the other hand, it felt horrible to think like I have this shameful disorder. It was just, it was a really rough period of my life, you know, I and <laughs> like I could still get emotional about it. Yeah. It was so hard. And I think that, you know, I've told it so many times, but I really struggled for so long. And, and that struggle became so much harder, actually, mm -hmm. because then I was so aware of when my reactions were not okay. Mm -hmm. And I would just shame myself and beat myself up and go after myself for like, why are you doing this? You know better. Da -da 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 -da. Right. That's your disorder. And just you're, you're beating yourself up for not making progress right it's like you weren't getting any help all you were getting was diagnoses that were off mm -hmm. right and oh here just take this just take this pill you'll be okay you know right yeah right and and it's i mean the doctor's prescription pad is not the end-all be-all it's not the solution it, it really not. isn't yeah, it really isn't. I wish more people could hear that and understand it. I think it's a very nuanced, complicated thing. And I think a lot of us have very complex lives with complex trauma combined with potentially a neurodivergent brain. And, you know, when you asked me about when did I discover I was neurodivergent, you know, I didn't for the longest time. I really just, I clawed my way up trying to make myself better instead of understanding that I don't need to be better. I need someone to take better care of me right? and someone to teach me how to do that. You right. know, you understand. Yeah. So it really wasn't until years later, I'd lost my mom. My mom had a brain tumor. She passed away. My extended family really struggled during that period. My dad, my brother, it was just, it was a horrible time. And as you can imagine, grief has its has its own challenges for somebody like myself, right? That really struggles with emotion. 
started well, you know, having panic started, attacks. Then, yeah. And then you pile this on top of it. I mean, it's just, you got to feel like you're drowning. You do. I would say that most women, most men, most people um, that have this experience where someone has said to them, oh, this is what's wrong with you. Um, we get enough help so that we're barely keeping our head above water. And then they leave. <laughs> it's like, really? This is it? This is all I get. Yeah, and, and realize. you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a tough thing. And I am so lucky because I had a business coach who was not a great coach for me. And she had put me onto this other coach because of her branding. And I was looking at her branding and she was a marriage coach. And I was like, huh, I could use a marriage coach. Cause I'm sure you can imagine being explosive emotionally didn't play well in my marriage. Right. right? right. And, uh, she said she specialized in coaching type A women that were married to type B men. And I was like, oh my God, sign me up. I need this woman right now. And I started coaching with her. She did one-to-one -one coaching and she was the first person that saw me, you know, and like validated me the first person. Oh, so that for me, like, I'm so emotional about it because it was such a gift that I didn't even know I needed, that I stumbled upon. And I think because I had this person that looked at me and was like, well, yeah, that reaction kind of makes sense. And I'm like, what? And help me pull apart that thoughts are not facts and that we have some control over what we think and that there's ways to navigate this. There's lots of middle here. There's lots of gray space for us to work in and you know, here's how you can pull this apart and make sense of it in your brain and take care of yourself and be nice to yourself and also be nice to other people because you're being nice to yourself. Yeah. And it starts with you. Yeah. But it has to come from a place, in my opinion, where you care for you. Mm -hmm. I agree. And 100%. in order to do that, you have to be, you have to believe you're worth something, Yeah. you know? Yeah. And I just think there's a lot of people walking around this earth that feel like they're worthless. Yeah. And it's because of the struggle, right? They're, yeah. they're searching and they're struggling and they feel like there's something wrong with them. Like yeah. they just are, in, they're, they're imperfect, but they're imperfect to a way or in a way to where they're just they're And, and, you know, people, people, so, so many people do just enough to get by. They do, and, and COVID was a perfect example of that, right? How fragile our society is, members of our society are, in that when we went through that 60-day shutdown and we were climbing the walls and we were going through all this anxiety and all this kind of stuff, people developed drug abuse problems and alcohol abuse problems and, and spousal abuse problems and, and child abuse problems. I mean, the things that happened that, I mean, the way people responded to it, I guess the best way to put it, was just unbelievable. I mean, it was, you know, and 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 it was hard to imagine that so many people were right on that ragged edge, but they were going to work every day. And so they were, they were, they were removing themselves from the home, right? As soon as they couldn't remove themselves from the home. Everything, you know, H-E double hockey sticks broke, you know, what cut, <laughs> broke loose, right? I mean, it was crazy. Yeah. Yeah. For a lot of people. And you we know, saw the, it. I mean, it was, it was, it was obvious. You know what I mean? It was, it was just, that was rough. It was so rough. And I still think we're seeing the fallout from that. We are. We are. I mean, there you are know. people, there are people still trying to get sober and still trying to, you know, get, get um, off of, you know. I mean, it's, it's just, it's, I, I don't know. I don't know how to explain it, but you know, there are a lot of people that, that looked at what they were doing for a living and looked at where they were living. And there was a lot of reevaluating that took place, right? A lot of people moved out to the country and a lot of people moved out of the city and a lot of people, you know, right. And then all of a sudden the companies say, okay, remote works over time to come back to, to the office. And people are like, uh, uh, 
No, yeah. no, no, we're staying remote, right? I like mm-hmm. working in my pajamas all day, you know. Right? <laughs> and I, by the way, I'm not I'm not talking about me. I'm talking about a friend of mine, yeah. uh, good friend of mine that works all day remote every day. And the first day that I met her, it was three o'clock in the afternoon, and she walked out in her pajamas yeah. and her fuzzy slippers, right? And she's <laughs> like, she's like apologizing all over the place. And I'm like, I get it. It's okay. Yeah. I don't think I would have showered today either if I didn't have to, you know. <laughs> Right. I mean, she just rolled out of bed, had her coffee and went to work. Yeah. She was so focused on what she was doing that she never stopped. And it was three o'clock in the afternoon. And she's like, I'm going to go inside. I'm going to take a shower and I'm going to change clothes. I'm going to be presentable. Right. I'm like, you don't have to do that on my account. Yeah. Come as you are party. We're good. You know. (laughs) So, So tell me about coaching. Why would you decide that you want to get into coaching? You know, it's kind of like a two-part thing. So the first part is that I was working as, before COVID, I was working as a fashion stylist, image consultant, whatever you want to call it, Um, kind of struggling with that. I'd had a direct selling business that I'd done that was involved in fashion and then was trying to get out on my own and do it. What I started was, I started discovering is that so many women that I worked with, in fact, all of them just had these really horrible body images and these thoughts and beliefs about themselves that were so negative and so optional. And so I really wanted to get into coaching and I was working with my marriage coach and she was telling me, you know, you could be a coach right now. You could literally just do that. And so I really wanted to do that because I wanted to be able to share what I'd learned, you know, what I knew and to help other people do it. Um, but I was really just walking the line, you know, I had added coaching to my image consulting business, but it wasn't really taking off mostly because I wasn't really selling it. Cause I didn't really know how to do that back then. And then I had enrolled in life coach certification training through the life coach school. And I was enrolled. I knew I was going to be doing it. We went to Hawaii in March. And as you can imagine, then while we were in Hawaii in March, we had to take an emergency flight home because, you know, COVID, Mm -hmm. Um, but it was such a gift. It was really such a gift for me because I was starting my coaching business. I was starting this coaching training. I started just doing free workshops for people, like free calls. Come on on to this call. I'll help you work through the emotional impact here. I'll help you feel better about what's going on. And I did that and I started my coaching practice from that. Mm -hmm. And I just started working with people. And you know, when you, I'm sure you do know, but you know, when you find that thing and you realize this has always been the thing I should be doing, it was that for me. It was so obvious. I'm literally doing it. Yeah. Right. We're literally doing it right now. So for me, it was something that when I started coaching people, I could see that they were so deeply impacted. You know, I will tell you, I have had so many clients that have told me like how coaching with me has changed their entire life. And I believe it because I feel the same way about my life. And I just think there's so many ways to get where you're going, but why not pick the one that makes you feel really good about yourself? Yeah. Yeah. And, and one that clarifies things, right? Mm -hmm. Because you know, people think that they should be able to solve whatever's going on in their head yeah. themselves because society has told us, oh, you need to just deal with it. You just mm-hmm. deal with it. You're fine. Just deal with it. Right. Yeah. And the fact of the matter is we really need somebody to bounce things off of. We yeah. really need somebody like you had with that coach that validates you. Right. You really need somebody that comes alongside and goes, okay, look, you don't need antidepressants. You don't have personality disorder. All this stuff that that regular medicine is telling you is not true. This, all these years you've been struggling and you've been trying to conform to this, this, you know, unreal idea of what society thinks you should be. And in fact, there isn't a thing wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with you. You're actually perfect. You're actually perfect. 
Yeah. Right. And you're a miracle made by God. So mm -hmm. now what we need to do is we need to sit down with people, let them, let them get things off their chest and, and, and listen to them. Right. Because a lot of people just need somebody to listen. They just need Truly. somebody to hear them. Yeah. You know? That gave me chills when you said that, because I, I believe this fully and they need people to see them. Yeah. You want somebody to see you. And in order to see somebody, you need to understand them, yeah. you know, and in order to understand somebody, you need to ask a lot of questions. Well, everybody wants to be cherished. Mm -hmm. I don't know a single person on this planet that doesn't want to be cherished. Yeah. Now, they may tell you that they don't, but the fact <laughs> of the matter is everybody has that need. Everybody has that need to feel like they are cherished. And that's what coaches do, Right. Because yeah. you're seeing them, because you're hearing them, because you're you're pointing out to them that, you know what, this struggle is real, and you're really you're not that far out of the norm. It's nothing wrong with you, right? Yeah. And you need everybody needs tools to deal with what they're dealing with, to get through that struggle. Because once you know this, once you get, it's why you were so emotional earlier. Mm -hmm. Once you get to where you're not struggling anymore, and once you get to where you're validated and you're seen and you're heard, it makes all the difference in the world. It changes yeah. everything. It changes the way you feel. It changes the way you look at life. It changes the way you treat the kid, your kids, the people around you, your spouse, mm -hmm. right? Everybody. Because all of a sudden, you have an appreciation for them you didn't have before because you were in this, in this like dungeon that you were trying to get out of. Right. And it was right. not a happy place. Yes. Now yes, you're at a place where you've, you've evolved and you've come to a place now where you're validated and it's not, you know, the struggles, the struggle is that you were in was, is over. Yeah. And you're not being misdiagnosed and you're not, you know what I mean? So yeah, I love I love how you described that. I think it's a really great visual and you're right. That is the truth and I think the other thing that a coach does is they don't buy your story. Yeah. In a good way. Yeah. Like you tell them the story of you and my favorite thing to think about myself and that I also give my clients is that's not the truth about me though. I can decide what the truth is about me. Right. And there's such freedom in that. You get to decide what the truth is about you, even if somebody else is telling you something different. But it's really hard to do that when we feel so emotionally broken, right? Well, you can't get there. Yeah. You're under all these layers of just junk, right? And once, once you go through what you've gone through, that goes away. It lifts all that. Yeah. Right. And I'll bet you never felt freer. Never felt freer. And, you know, I will tell you that for me, I think I'll always have a coach. Yeah. I have a very persistent negative voice in my head yeah. just because of the years of experience that I've had. And also because of the way my brain works. Yeah. And I've just learned that I can always get help for that. And I just think like, you know, Experiencing negative emotion is not optional. We all have to experience it, but experiencing additional emotional pain is optional. Yeah. And, and that's the part. And finding the tools to deal with it is yes. optional, right? You yes. can do that. It is available. It's out there and you can find it and you can get better. Yes. You can, you can find better. it and you can get better. I hope that somebody listening to this podcast hears that and takes it in because there is, I've never met somebody that can't be helped. Yeah. Never. I've never met somebody that can't be helped. If you want to be helped, there is help available for you for sure. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. I agree. I have thoroughly enjoyed our time together. I'm going to put a link to your website uh, on the description for the podcast. Is there anything else you'd like to cover before we wrap up? No, I mean, definitely come check out my website. 
on my website is also, I have my own podcast. So if you love podcasts, you could go listen to what I have to talk about. I mean, I'm an over-talker, over-sharer. So you can imagine that's what my podcast is like. <laughs> What's the name of your podcast? It's called How to Love Yourself No Matter What. There you go. There you go. By the way, just a shameless plug. I have now made myself available to be on podcasts. I just did the oh. first one last week. Um, and I'm starting to, I'm starting to get invitations and things. So if you, if you, if I can invite myself, um, if you'd like for me to be on, I'd love to be on. I'd love that. I think that would be so great. I think we'd have a great time together. Yes. I think we so too. Have. We already <laughs> have. I thoroughly enjoyed our time together and I cannot thank you enough for being our guest on the Michael Litton experience. Thank you so much for having me on. It was really a beautiful experience for me, just being able to cry in front of you and all your listeners. <laughs> we made you cry like three or four times, which normally I'd get in trouble for, right? And you got the shivers a few times. I mean, this is good stuff. It's really good stuff. This is really important having these conversations. So I appreciate you putting this out in the world. It really is. You know, and people need to understand that they're not broken. They yes. just need to understand that there's hope you know, and you can find the help. It's there. 100%. Thanks again. I really, I'm so glad we had a chance to meet and spend time together. We hope you enjoyed another episode of the Mike Litton Experience. If you did, do us a favor, smash that subscribe button, tell your friends, family, and coworkers about our program, and wherever you get your podcasts, please leave us a rating. It helps us to connect with quality people just like you. And that's a wrap. Another episode of the Mike Litton Experience in the books. Reach out to Mike on Instagram at Litton Realty. Want to meet with Mike? Check out calendly.com slash Rio 760.